deep in the waters of the Balearic Sea, there is an archipelago. This quartet of islands is part of the nation of Spain, and the furthest east is called Menorca. It's so far east that it's about as close to Valencia, Spain, as it is to the city of Algiers, the capital of Algeria on the continent of Africa. Menorca is old, with people living on its stony cliffs and crystal blue waters as far back as ancient times. Just as Florida was traded back and forth between Spain and England during the 18th and 19th centuries, so too was Menorca. When the Seven Years' War broke out, both Florida and our island cousin Menorca were unsure where we would wind up. With the conflict ending in 1763, we met the same fate. We were handed from Spain to the victors of the war, Britain. In Florida, the British were hoping to turn their new land on our peninsula into a viable place for colonists and settlers to create homes and towns. They were offering land grants in huge chunks to any British colonist who was interested in setting up a spot. Enter Andrew Turnbull, a doctor from Scotland. After some negotiation, he purchases a grant in present-day Volusia County, south of the already settled town of Daytona. He named it New Smyrna, and alongside his wife, he sought about bringing hundreds of settlers to this new spot. His wife, Maria, was Greek, and she suggested that they go to the Grecian islands for new residents. He hopped on a boat and sailed east across the Atlantic and found himself docked in a friendly British port, the island of Menorca. Over the next few months, he would travel to different islands and ports along the Mediterranean Sea. He picked up Italians from Livorno and Greeks from Levant. Those he picked up, he would leave on Menorca while he went to get others. When he returned, the men who'd been left on Menorca had met partners, and now those partners were pregnant. It was not a perfect life Turnbull was offering, and most of these laborers would essentially be indentured servants, but the Italians, the Greeks, and the Menorcans boarded Turnbull's ship. All told, he returned to Florida from Menorca in mid-1768 with over 1,400 settlers. 148 of them had died on the trip, and the city when they arrived was not as developed as Turnbull had promised. Things started to go south. Collectively, the group was then known as the Menorcans. These colonists spent nine years on Turnbull's patch of swampland, hoping New Smyrna would become a home for them. They tried to grow indigo at Turnbull's request, but their small colony continued to falter. Turnbull turned out to be a brutal leader, imprisoning those who disagreed with him and allowed nearly a thousand of his new citizens to die under his poor treatment. By 1777, just as the American-British colonies were trying everything in their power to become an independent union of states, those who were able to revolted against Turnbull and eventually escaped New Smyrna. They ran north to the largest city in Florida, St. Augustine. Once they settled, they needed somewhere to bury their dead. There may have been a church on the land, but over 240 years later, we can only decipher history from what was left behind. And what is left behind is Tolomato Cemetery. Just a few blocks from Castillo de San Marcos, Tolomato is right behind the old pharmacy on Cordova Street in the heart of what was once the Menorcan District. It's fenced in, a square of overgrown grass and shady trees dotted with crypts and gravestones of those who once called this area home. We aren't entirely clear how many people are buried at Tolomato, but it's something around a thousand. The majority of the bodies buried here are unmarked, some even older than the Menorcans from the 18th century. But one marked grave here holds a very special title. It's the grave of Elizabeth Forrester, a Philadelphia girl who died here in Florida when she was just 16. Her death date is marked on the grave as 1798. 
though this is fairly late in the settlement of Florida as a colony, due to older graves not having clear markers, Elizabeth Forrester is officially the oldest marked grave anywhere in the state. I spent an afternoon with her, the Menorcans, and the hundreds of others buried here at Talamato Cemetery. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the season five premiere, and today we'll be talking about Talamato Cemetery and St. Augustine, those buried below, how we remember them, and the difficult challenges in protecting the dead. It was gray and I spent most of the afternoon anticipating an oncoming storm. I haven't been in St. Augustine in almost two years. The last time I was here, I was overwhelmed by the city. It feels different here, a little pocket of Florida that feels unique from everywhere else. I've been visiting this city my whole life, and it has always left me feeling a little unnerved. The air feels charged, and even places that I adore, like Flagler's old Ponce de Leon Hotel, are saturated with an energy that makes my skin crawl. It's an incredible place to be, and I go as often as I can, but you can really feel the passage of time here. The buildings are older, and the bodies buried below are as well. It didn't start initially as a cemetery. I mean, if you want to find cemeteries, practically any place you're walking in St. Augustine actually is a cemetery. That is Elizabeth Duran Gessner. She's one of the founding members and the president of the Talamato Cemetery Preservation Association, or TCPA. The cemetery itself is owned by the Cathedral Basilica of St. Augustine, but the TCPA protects Talamato, maintains the grave sites, and collects their stories. When I visited, Elizabeth showed me around Talamato for over an hour. We began at Elizabeth Forrester's grave. Yes, Elizabeth Duran Gessner is my host, and Elizabeth Forrester is the oldest marked grave. Miss Forrester's gravestone is worn, but the marble still gleams in the sunlight. The words are difficult to decipher, but the TCPA is able to work out her name, that she died when she was 16, and though her cause of death is not explicit, it says she suffered from quote-unquote Christian patience. This likely meant that she suffered from some sort of long illness and moving to Florida was a prescription for health. This was common at the time, and in Miss Forrester's case, it did not work out. She was buried here, and her crypt still sits above ground. My host told me that Miss Forrester was the center of a strange series of crimes even after her death. In the time that Miss Forrester died, St. Augustine was a much different place from just two decades earlier when the Menorcans first arrived. Sometimes shortly after she was buried, grave robbers broke in and stole all of her clothing. This isn't the above ground vault, and it was something the Spanish preferred. It was very nice, very lovely, but the problem is it was very easy to get into. So all they had to do is just lift this up and they stole her clothing. That was because clothing was very hard to get in St. Augustine. Cloth Mm. was hard to get. And there were these little thieves markets all over town. Before Elizabeth Forrester was even born, died, or buried, the Menorcans took up residence in the abandoned homes in St. Augustine. You see, when the Seven Years' War ended and Spain handed Florida over to the British, much of the land in St. Augustine was left unoccupied. The northern part of the city was overwhelmed by the Menorcans, who, difficult as it may have been, successfully established all the details and functions of home for themselves after fleeing New Smyrna. 
One such function that needed to be established quickly was a church and, of course, a cemetery. This whole end of town was known as the Menorcan District, and um, they settled here. Their priest, Father Pedro Camps, lived in what is now St. Photius Shrine, the Avero House. Oh, okay. And had his masses there, but then he asked permission to bury those who died in his, his, his little parish here in, uh, in the cemetery, or what the governor referred to as the Old Catholic Cemetery. Remember, this is during the British period. They weren't Catholic, so there were no Catholic churches or anything here. And um, the governor gave him permission. Now, the governor calling it the Old Catholic Cemetery actually provides a clue as to what this land used to be. Even though the Menorcans were famously buried here at Talamado, they were not the first. Years before the Menorcans were gathered up by Turnbull, a group of indigenous persons from Georgia had taken up residence where Talamado now rests. Once part of the Guale tribe, this group fled Georgia after attacks from neighboring tribes pushed them from their homes. St. Augustine took them in at a Franciscan mission called Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe de Talamado, which means Our Lady of Guadalupe of Talamado. Talamado, it seems, was a place name, a river where they had once lived. When the missions were mostly destroyed by the British, the Guale were lost, but the name Talamado remained. Elizabeth and her team believe there are ruins of a church foundation under the grass today, evidence of where the mission once stood. Evidence of this actually sits next to Miss Forrester's grave, a stone structure that may have held up a cross in years gone by. If so, among the Menorcans buried here, there may also be older Spanish and native bodies that rest below the high grass where we tread. Florida was given back to Spain at the end of the American Revolution with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. The Menorcans may have considered leaving their new neighborhood, but the Spanish offered land grants that allowed them to remain. So they did. They continued to bury their dead at Talamado. Now, let's talk about gravestones. There are a variety inside Talamado. Though many are buried here, most of these graves are unmarked. That is because when they were buried, most grave markers were wood, and because of that, they were quickly deteriorated by natural elements. One of the reasons there's a scarcity of markers is the original markers would have been wood. Right. And original markers actually probably wouldn't have been no markers at all, mm -hmm. because they actually, that was not that big a deal. Elizabeth tells me that it wasn't until the 19th century as the middle class began demanding better monuments that marble and other materials became the norm. Back when the Menorcans were burying their dead, a piece of wood would suffice. There are many tombs from later years with huge marble boxes that sit at strange angles in the grass where the soil has caved just enough for the structures to look uneven. Many of these tombs have symbols on top along with words and names. One Irish priest buried here even has a Celtic trinity. Some tombs, due to years of rain and erosion, are illegible, their names fading from time. There are spots where gravestones are actually missing, but there's a metal gate that still frames the spot where someone is buried below. Within that border, someone rests eternally. But without the gravestone, we are not sure who. Some of the gravestones are newer, such as the line of beautiful white graves near the front gate that are maybe only a few years old. Buried beneath the shining row are Confederate soldiers, newly dedicated by a veteran who seeks out unmarked Civil War veteran graves. Behind these Confederate graves, there is an arched tomb belonging to former mayor of St. Augustine Parsetti, 
who served the city when the Civil War swept the country. It was his, it was his job to hand over the keys to the city. Well, he didn't want to do that, so he resigned and took off. He was kind of a difficult person. He, he, was, trying, he was trying to establish a colony in Cuba. So he took off for probably Cuba, but some, someplace else at any rate, and he left it to Cristobal Bravo, who was the vice mayor and is one of the markers there, to hand over the keys to the city. Wow. <laughs> so. In the middle of the graveyard is an extremely unique grave, one with a bust sitting right on top. It's the face of Bishop Vero. He was the first ever bishop to the Diocese of St. Augustine. He lived in Savannah during the Civil War, and in 1870, he moved to St. Augustine with a few nuns from the Sisters of St. Joseph. Along with establishing Catholicism in the city, he sought to open up education opportunities, especially for recently emancipated formerly enslaved persons who lived in the area. He traveled to farms across Florida to ensure that formerly enslaved people who were still working on farms knew that the government had emancipated them. On one such trip, he fell gravely ill, and on the trip back, he died. He was buried in Talamato, but they didn't have a good place to honor someone so important to the community. Instead of erecting a proper grave for him, they shoved him into the large building at the back of Talamato. The fact that someone was already buried within was of no concern, apparently. There is a tomb still to this day in back of Talamato, a brilliant white star in the Florida sunshine. Outside, there is a marble slab featuring an hourglass with bat wings to denote the expression, time flies. Bats are sometimes considered good luck in Cuba, and the man who is being honored here was, indeed, a very important Cuban. Within the tomb, there is a huge slab on the ground, an altar with a typical Catholic crucifix on the wall, and a large bust. The bust is of Father Felix Varela, and many years ago, the old priest was buried here. He was born in 1788. Varela's grandfather was the commander of the military in Spanish-held Florida. After working with Father O'Reilly, whose tomb bears the Celtic symbol in the cemetery, he returned to Cuba where he became a priest. Over the next several years, he became a philosopher in the Cuban independence movement, an advocate for the abolition of slavery in his home country, and was even sentenced to death by the Spanish government. He escaped capture and lived in New York for much of his life, continuing to write and grow and spread his humanitarian beliefs. When he died at the age of 64 in 1853, Father Varela's body was sent to St. Augustine, where a magnificent tomb, where I now stand, was erected. He was placed inside in 1855. Twenty-five years later, Bishop Varro died suddenly in the middle of summer on a trip back from a farm. His body needed to be buried quickly, and there was nowhere fitting for someone as important as him. That is, except for the beautiful tomb of Father Varela. They, they got this out here. The casket was supposedly a demo casket from a funeral director, not probably even meant for a burial, but, you know, this was the Cadillac of, of caskets. So they got him out here. They, they actually had to rip off the, the, they took off the stone, hung the stone on the wall, picked up the, the part around there is called a crib, the other, the metal, the, the granite frame that it's in, mm -hmm. took that off and somehow or another crammed the bishop's big casket oh in there. Oh my gosh. So they had moved Father Varela's bones to a little compartment at the back oh. of the, the so, so for the next year, goodness, how many years? Um, oh, another 25 years, actually almost 30 something. Until 1911, they were both in that vault. That's right. 
For 30 years, two men who never even knew each other, who died two and a half decades apart, were crammed into the same stone vault. Luckily, in 1911, Cuba reinterred Father Varela's body on the island at the University of Havana, where he rests today. Bishop Varela's body was moved to its now central location in the cemetery, both men's faces now staring from beautifully made busts, warmly looking out at the place they once called home. The tomb at the back is actually empty now. Neither Varela nor Varela rest within. It's just a vacant stone box that once held a pair of legends. Bishop Varro and Father Varela are not the only important people that are buried here at Tolomato. For example, when the Haitian Revolution broke out at the end of the 18th century, it was due to a revolt by enslaved persons on the island. One of the essential leaders in that revolution was George Biazu. After the revolution, he became a Spanish leader in Florida and eventually led the black militia from St. Augustine. When he died in 1801, he was buried here, in Tolomato, though we aren't sure where. Under a tree on the right side of the cemetery, there's a marker for John McQueen. He was a naval spy who smuggled letters between General Washington and General Lafayette during the American Revolution. The reason he came here was after the revolution, he had bought up a ton of property and he had a buyer lined up for it. And when the revolution ended, the buyer went bankrupt. So, of course, that meant he went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And in those days, if you went bankrupt, you went to jail. You didn't just, you right. didn't, no chapter 11. <laughs> uh, so he fled, you had to get to another country. And this was another country at that point. Yeah, sure. On his plaque, it actually reads Don Juan McQueen. The American patriot became a Spanish citizen. Near the front of the cemetery, there are two graves for veterans of the Civil War, not the Confederates on the left side, but on the right. Both of these men were African-American, but they were both free and able to serve in the United States Colored Troops, or the USCT, for the Union. The South Carolina troops would often recruit here in Florida. We visit one whose name we can't read. So actually he was free, but he was a waiter. However, because the army was segregated, he couldn't go into the regular one. Right. The U.S. Army, the you know, Union. So he was in the USCT, and we know he was 19 and a waiter when he joined. Wow. And he signs, so he was literate. There's another man over there, that's Hector Adams, and he was 50 and a teamster when he joined. Wow. There's also a governor from the Spanish period, diplomats from Haiti, veterans from throughout various wars, and notable Menorcan citizens who helped turn St. Augustine into what it is today. They are here, right in the core of the city they helped shape, safe now from the dangers that awaited them in life. But there's not just notable people here, not just philosophers and spies, politicians and soldiers. There are also people here who were swept up in the inevitable deaths that found so many during their lifetimes. Notably, near our friends who served in the USCT, there is a squat brick structure. They aren't sure who exactly is interred within, if anyone but they have a good idea as to the object's purpose. It may have been a yellow fever vault. You see, in the 1880s, the mysterious illness known as yellow fever killed thousands in humid climates, especially Florida. They had no idea how it spread, only that it got worse in the summer, and it seemed to jump randomly from person to person. They had no idea that it was a fever spread by mosquitoes who carried the virus through Florida for years. 
Back when it was still a phantom killer, the idea was just to bury the bodies quickly, and sometimes that meant vaulting them in large masses and seemingly trapping the virus within the brick containment. When the cemetery eventually closed, preventing anyone from being buried within, this was due to the overwhelming uncertainty of the yellow fever. The gates closed in 1884. Over a century later, we don't know the names of those within that brick tomb. There are many we are lucky to know the names of, though all we know of their stories is what is preserved on their tombstones. For example, there's a small obelisk near the back. It reads the following. Sacred to the memory of Mary Carmen Benet was put up by her husband, H.T. Bayef. And it tells you underneath are all of their children. Oh, goodness. Only one of them made it to over a year. I see that age 11 months, 8 days. All their names are listed. Agnes Teasdale, Franklin Dibble, Louise Porcher. Three children of the mother who also passed, all buried by the father. At the bottom of the obelisk, it reads, Erected by the husband and father, the last of a once happy family. That is... Isn't it sad? That's so sad. There were others along the side, cracked in the middle, its pieces falling off. There's a few folks named Antonio, a woman named Anne, a man named Joseph, and his wife Christina. One woman named Mary Manusi died in 1867, aged 80. One grave actually contains a whole family, including one member who passed away after the cemetery closed in 1884. Robert Sabati was entombed in 1892, eight years after Talamato's closing. He's not the only one. My guide, Elizabeth, tells me that many folks wanted their families buried together and would sneak in bodies after 1884 to make sure their loved ones would rest eternally together. One vault actually has collapsed, and the body has since been removed. Some gravestones have been fully pulled from the grass by the roots of trees pushing from below. One tall gravestone is cracked so deeply that it is likely going to split permanently soon, and Elizabeth can't find a company willing to work with a fragile historic piece like this. Earlier she told me how tricky dealing with historical artifacts like gravestones can be. No matter what, somebody said there's no, no such thing as a bad restoration because it protects it at least. You can always take it off and redo it later if you yeah. find, you know. Like... No such thing as a bad restoration. You can't help but mourn all the gravestones that have been lost. The Talamato Cemetery Preservation Association has records and they're working to add more information and accessible guides for visitors to Talamato. It's truly a small spit of land, a green square situated just on the edge of this city of cemeteries. They are hoping to make the names of those buried even more available to those of us who are able to visit. The cemetery is only open to the public once a month, though numbers have obviously been down in the last six months. And even though their markers fade over time, the eternal residents of Talamato feel like a safe haven. There is so rarely a spot one can find that is as densely historical as this cemetery. So many people who had so many impacts across the country and especially in Florida are buried beneath our feet. In one spot of land, you find revolutionary generals, independent philosophers, military spies, Civil War veterans from both sides, Spanish colonial governors, immigrants from Italy, Spain, and Greece, victims of a brutal illness, and educators who sought to help the populations of their home any way they could. They are all right here. And perhaps most important of all, there is Elizabeth Forrester. She was a kid likely wealthy enough in Pennsylvania to come to Florida when she was sick. Whatever took her in the end, we aren't sure. Only a few words are still clear on the stone in which she is entombed. 
I rested my hand on the stone, just one barrier between us and her. If Miss Forrester had died a few years later, or if one older grave had been preserved throughout the years, you likely would never have heard Elizabeth Forrester's name. Her life and death were short and unremarkable. But the events of time and material corruption meant that now, in 2020, we have a direct line from 1798 to now. She is the oldest marked burial in our state, an ambassador of all those here in Talamado to us. A random series of events throughout history have made her that. Perhaps one day we will know her better, but for now, a name, a date, and a final resting place are all we can put together of her story. But like my guide Elizabeth said, there's no such thing as a bad restoration. For now, we get to fill in the gaps of the stories of those here. What they looked like, where they lived, what their short time in our shared home was like. In their current state, we are very fortunate. We can pay them a visit and imagine that in another time, maybe we could have been friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. Season 5 is going to be one all about the unknown things in our state, and I'm so eager to spend the next two and a half months exploring that with you. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some amazing stories waiting for you in our back catalog. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the first episode. In fact, I recommend you listen to an episode similar to this one if you want to see more of what this show is about. For example, this time last year, I did a bunch of other similar episodes for Halloween, but the one most like this one is called Spook Hill and Other Tales. It is quite a trip. There's a link to that in the description below. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it makes the work that I do much easier knowing how much you enjoy the show. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Elizabeth Duran Gessner, who took me into the Talamato Cemetery on a beautiful Wednesday morning. She took the time to show me around and talk with me. If you would like to support the Talamato Cemetery Preservation Association, there's a link to do so below. And I would recommend, once they have opportunities for you to visit, you take a trip to St. Augustine. You will not regret taking a trip to Talamato. It is a beautiful spot, full of wonderful history. If you don't know, Election Day is coming up. It's November 3rd. Early voting starts in several counties in Florida very soon. If you are interested in doing that, I would recommend you look into it using your registration at registertovoteflorida.gov. They will tell you your polling location and how soon you can start voting. If you'd like to do absentee ballots, now is the perfect time to get that done before Election Day is any closer. If you want to vote in person, remember you have until November 3rd. That is the last day. That is Election Day. Make your voice heard. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, Florida's Spiders. A trip into the creepy, crawly nature of everyone's favorite eight-legged bug. That will be next Monday. 
Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. Drink water. And please, vote.